Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Autumn presents Host Written by David Foster Wallace Part 1 Mr. John Ziegler, 37 late of Louisville's WHAS, is now on the air, live and local, from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. every weeknight on Southern California's KFI, a 50,000-watt megastation whose hourly ID and sweeper, designed by the station's imaging department and featuring a gravelly basso whisper against licks from Rat's 1984 metal classic Round and Round, is KFI AM 640 Los Angeles, more stimulating talk radio. This is either the eighth or ninth host job that Mr. Ziegler's had in his talk radio career, and far and away the biggest. He moved out here to L.A. over Christmas, alone, towing a U-Haul, and found an apartment not far from KFI's studios, which are in an old part of the Koreatown district near Wilshire Center. The John Ziegler Show is the first local, non-syndicated late-night program that KFI has aired in a long time. It's something of a gamble for everyone involved. Ten o'clock to one qualifies as late at night in Southern California, where hardly anything reputable's open after nine. It is currently right near the end of the program's second segment on the evening of May 11, 2004, shortly after Nicholas Berg's taped beheading by an Al-Qaeda splinter in Iraq. Dressed as is his custom for golf, and wearing a white-billed cap with corporate logo, Mr. Ziegler is seated by himself in the on-air studio, surrounded by monitors and sheaves of internet downloads. He is trim, clean-shaven, and handsome in the somewhat bland way that top golfers and local TV newsmen tend to be. His eyes, which off-air are usually flat and unhappy, are alight now with passionate conviction. Only some of the studio's monitors concern Mr. Z's own program, the ones up near the ceiling take muted, closed-caption feeds from Fox News, MSNBC, and what might be C-SPAN. To his big desk's upper left is a wall-mounted digital clock that counts down seconds. His computer monitor's displays also show the exact time. Across the soundproof glass of the opposite wall, another monitor in the air mix room is running an episode of The Simpsons, also muted, which both the board-op and the call-screener are watching with half an eye. Pendant in front of John Ziegler's face, attached to the same type of hinged flexible stand as certain student desk lamps, is a sure-brand broadcast microphone that is sheathed in a gray foam filtration sock to soften popped peas and hissed sibilance. It is into this microphone that the host speaks. And I'll tell you why. It's because we're better than they are. A Georgetown B.A. in government and philosophy, scratch golfer, former TV sportscaster, possible world-class authority on the O.J. Simpson trial, and sometime contributor to MSNBC's Scarborough Country, Mr. Ziegler is referring here to America versus what he terms the Arab world. It's near the end of his churn, which is the industry term for a host's opening monologue, whose purpose is both to introduce a show's nightly topics and to get listeners emotionally stimulated enough that they're drawn into the program and don't switch away. More than any other mass medium, radio enjoys a captive audience, 
if only because so many of the listeners are driving, but in a major market there are dozens of AM stations to listen to, plus of course FM and satellite radio, and even a very seductive and successful station rarely gets more than a 5 or 6% audience share. We're not perfect, we suck a lot of the time, but we are better as a people, as a culture, and as a society than they are, and we need to recognize that so we can possibly even begin to deal with the evil that we are facing. When Mr. Z's impassioned, his voice rises and his arms wave around, which obviously only those in the air mix room can see. He also fidgets, bobs slightly up and down in his executive desk chair, and weaves, Although he must stay seated and can't pace around the room, the host does not have to keep his mouth any set distance from the microphone, since the board op, Mondo Hernandez, can adjust his levels on the mixing board's channel 7 so that Mr. Z's volume always stays in range and never peaks or fades. Mondo, whose price for letting outside parties hang around air mix is one large bag of Cool Ranch Doritos per evening, is an immense 21-year-old man with a ponytail, stony Mesoamerican features, and the placid grandmotherly eyes common to giant mammals everywhere. Keeping the studio signal from peaking is one of Mondo's prime directives, along with making sure that each of the program's scheduled commercial spots is loaded into profit and run at just the right time, whereupon he must confirm that the ad has run as scheduled in the special airmix log he signs each page of, so that the station can bill advertisers for their spots. Mondo, who started out two years ago as an unpaid intern and now earns $10 an hour, works 7 to 1 on weeknights and also board ops KFI's special cooking show on Sundays. As long as he's kept under 40 hours a week, which he somehow always just barely is, the station is not obliged to provide Mondo with employee benefits. The Nickberg beheading and its internet video compose what is known around KFI as a monster, meaning a story that has both high news value and tremendous emotional voltage. As is SOP in political talk radio, the emotions most readily accessed are anger, outrage, indignation, fear, despair, disgust, contempt, and a certain kind of apocalyptic glee. The underlying premise of The John Ziegler Show is that, thanks to its socialistic leanings, incompetent media, eroding moral foundation, aging demographics, and undereducated masses, the United States, as we know it, is doomed. In my view, we don't know how much longer we still have to enjoy it, so we shouldn't waste precious moments constantly worrying or complaining about it. However, because not everyone in this country is yet convinced of this seemingly obvious reality— the show does see merit in pointing out or documenting the demise of our nation, and will take great pains to do so. And because most everyone can agree that there is value in attempting to delay the sinking of the Titanic as long as possible, whenever feasible, the John Ziegler show will attempt to do its part to plug whatever holes in the ship it can. With that said, the show realizes that, no matter how successful it or anyone else may be in slowing the downfall of our society— the final outcome is still pretty much inevitable, so we might as well have a good time watching the place fall to pieces. Be advised that the intro's stilted, term-paperish language, which looks kind of awful in print, is a great deal more effective when the spiel is delivered out loud. The stiffness gives it a slight air of self-mockery, 
that keeps you from being totally sure just how seriously John Ziegler takes what he's saying, meaning he gets to have it both ways. This half-pretend pretension, which is ingenious in all sorts of ways, was pioneered in talk radio by Rush Limbaugh, although with Limbaugh the semi-self-mockery is more tonal than syntactic, all of which the Nick Berg things got in spades. Mr. Ziegler, whose program is in only its fourth month at KFI, has been fortunate in that 2004 has already been chock-full of monsters. Saddam's detention, the Abu Ghraib scandal, the Scott Peterson murder trial, the Greg Heidel gang rape trial, and preliminary hearings in the rape trial of Kobe Bryant. But tonight is the most angry, indignant, disgusted, and impassioned that Mr. Z's gotten on air so far, and the consensus in Airmix is that it's resulting in some absolutely first-rate talk radio. John Ziegler, who is a talk radio host of unflagging industry, broad general knowledge, mordant wit, and extreme conviction, makes a particular specialty of media criticism. One object of his disgust and contempt in the churn so far has been the U.S. Network's spineless, patronizing decision not to air the Berg videotape and thus to deny Americans a true and accurate view of the barbarity, the utter depravity of these people. Even more outrageous to Mr. Z is the mainstream media's lack of outrage about Berg's taped murder versus all that same media's hand-wringing and invective over the recent photos of alleged prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib prison, which he views as a clear indication of the deluded blame-America-first mentality of the U.S. press. It is an associated contrast between Americans' mortified response to the Abu Ghraib photos and reports of the Arab world's phlegmatic reaction to the Berg video that leads to his churn's climax, which is that we are plainly, unambiguously better than the Arab world. Whereupon John Ziegler invites listeners to respond if they are so moved, repeats the special mnemonic KFI call-in number, and breaks for the 30-second news and ads on time to the second, as Mondo takes ISDN feed from Airwatch and the program's associate producer and call screener, Vince Nicholas, 26 and hipply bald, pushes back from his console and raises both arms in congratulation through the glass. It goes without saying that there are all different kinds of stimulation. Depending on one's politics, sensitivities, and tastes in argumentation, it is not hard to think of objections to John Ziegler's climactic claim, or at least of some urgent requests for clarification, like exactly what and whom does the Arab world refer to, and why are a few editorials and man-on-the-street interviews sufficient to represent the attitude and character of a whole diverse region, and why is Al Jazeera's showing of the Berg video so awful if Mr. Z has just castigated the U.S. networks for not showing it? Plus, of course, what is better supposed to mean here? More moral? More diffident about our immorality? Is it not, in our own history, pretty easy to name some Berg-level atrocities committed by U.S. nationals or agencies or even governments and approved by much of our populace? Or perhaps this leaving aside whether John Ziegler's assertions are true or coherent, is it even remotely helpful or productive to make huge, sweeping claims about some other region's culture's inferiority to us? What possible effect can such remarks have except to incite hatred? 
aren't they sort of irresponsible? It is true that no one on either side of the studio's thick window expresses or even alludes to any of these objections. But this is not because Mr. Z's support staff is stupid or hateful or even necessarily on board with sweeping jingoistic claims. It is because they understand the particular codes and imperatives of large market talk radio. The fact of the matter is that it is not John Ziegler's job to be responsible or nuanced or to think about whether his on-air comments are productive or dangerous or cogent or even defensible. That is not to say that the host would not defend his we're better strenuously or that he does not believe it's true. It is to say that he has exactly one on-air job and that is to be stimulating. An obvious point but it's one that's often overlooked by people who complain about propaganda, misinformation, and irresponsibility in commercial talk radio. Whatever else they are, the above-type objections to we're better than the Arab world are calls to accountability. They are the sort of criticisms one might make of, say, a journalist, someone whose job description includes being responsible about what he says in public. And KFI's John Ziegler is not a journalist. He is an entertainer, or maybe it's better to say that he is part of a peculiar, modern, and very popular type of news industry, one that manages to enjoy the authority and influence of journalism without the stodgy constraints of fairness, objectivity, and responsibility that make trying to tell the truth such a drag for everyone involved. It is a frightening industry, though not for any of the simple reasons most critics give. Distributed over two walls of KFI's broadcast studio, behind the monitors and clocks, are a dozen promotional KFI posters, all in the station's eye-catching Halloween colors against the sweeper's bright white. On each poster, the word stimulating is both italicized and underscored. Except for the door and soundproof window, the entire studio is lined in acoustic tile with strange Pollockian patterns of tiny holes, much of the tile is grayed and decaying, and the carpet's no color at all. KFI has been in this facility for nearly 30 years and will soon be moving out. Both the studio and air mix are kept chilly because of all the electronics. The overhead lights are old inset fluorescents, the kind with the slight flutter to them. Nothing casts any sort of shadow. On one of the studio walls is also pinned the special set of playing cards distributed for the invasion of Iraq, these with hand-drawn X's over the faces of those Baathists captured or killed so far. The great L-shaped table that Mr. Z sits at nearly fills the little room. It's got so many coats of brown paint on it that the tabletop looks slightly humped. At the L's base is another sure microphone used by Ken Champo of 3 to 7's John and Ken, its hinged stand now partly folded up so that the mic hangs like a wilted flower. The oddest thing about the studio is a strong scent of decaying bananas, as if many peels or even whole bananas were rotting in the room's wastebaskets, none of which look to have been emptied any time recently. Mr. Ziegler, who has his ascetic side, drinks only bottled water in the studio, and certainly never snacks, so there is no way he is the source of the banana smell. It is worth considering the strange media landscape in which political talk radio is a salient. 
Never before have there been so many different national news sources, different now in terms of both medium and ideology. Major newspapers from anywhere are available online. There are the broadcast networks, plus public TV, cables CNN, Fox News, CNBC et al., print and web magazines, internet bulletin boards, The Daily Show, email newsletters, blogs. All this is well known. It's part of the media environment we live in. But there are prices and ironies here. One is that the increasing control of U.S. mass media by a mere handful of corporations has, rather counterintuitively, created a situation of extreme fragmentation, a kaleidoscope of information options. Another is that the ever-increasing number of ideological news outlets creates precisely the kind of relativism that cultural conservatives decry, a kind of epistemic free-for-all in which the truth is wholly a matter of perspective and agenda. In some respects, all this variety is probably good, productive of difference and dialogue and so on, but it can also be confusing and stressful for the average citizen. Short of signing on to a particular mass ideology and patronizing only those partisan news sources that ratify what you want to believe, it is increasingly hard to determine which sources to pay attention to and how exactly to distinguish real information from spin. This fragmentation and confusion have helped give rise to what's variously called the meta-media, or explaining industry. Under most classifications, this category includes media critics for news dailies, certain high-end magazines, panel shows like CNN's Reliable Sources, media watch blogs like Instapundit.com and TalkingPointsMemo.com, and a large percentage of political talk radio. It is no accident that one of the signature lines Mr. Ziegler likes to deliver over his opening bumper music at 06 is, the show where we take a look at the news of the day, we provide you the facts, and then we give you the truth. For this is how much of contemporary political talk radio understands its function, to explore the day's news in a depth and detail that other media do not, and to interpret, analyze, and explain that news. Which all sounds great. Except, of course, explaining the news really means editorializing, infusing the actual events of the day with the host's own opinions. And here is where the real controversy starts, because these opinions are, as just one person's opinions, exempt from strict journalistic standards of truthfulness, probity, etc., and yet they are often delivered by the talk radio host not as opinions, but as revealed truths, truths intentionally ignored or suppressed by a mainstream press that's biased in favor of liberal interests. This is, at any rate, the rhetorical template for Rush Limbaugh's program, on which most syndicated and large-market political talk radio is modeled, from ABC's Sean Hannity and talk radio network's Laura Ingram to Gigi Liddy, Rusty Humphreys, Michael Medved, Mike Gallagher, Neil Bortz, Dennis Prager, and, in many respects, Mr. John Ziegler. KFI AM 640 carries Rush Limbaugh every weekday, 9 a.m. to noon, via live ISDN feed from Premier Radio Networks, which is one of the dozen syndication networks that own talk radio shows so popular that it's worth it for local stations to air them, even though it costs the stations a portion of their spot load. 
The same goes for Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who's based in Southern California and used to broadcast her syndicated show from KFI until the mid-90s, when Premier built its own L.A. facility and was able to offer Schlesinger more sumptuous digs. Dr. Laura airs Monday through Friday from noon to three on KFI, though her shows are canned and there's no live feed. Besides 7 to 10 p.m.'s Phil Hendry, another KFI host whose show went into national syndication and who now has his own private dressing room and studio over at Premier, the only other weekday syndication KFI uses is Coast to Coast with George Norrie, which covers and analyzes news of the paranormal throughout the wee hours. Whatever the social effects of talk radio or the partisan agendas of certain hosts, it is a fallacy that political talk radio is motivated by ideology. It is not. Political talk radio is a business, and it is motivated by revenue. The conservatism that dominates today's AM airwaves does so because it generates high arbitron ratings, high ad rates, and maximum profits. Radio has become a more lucrative business than most people know. Throughout most of the past decade, the industry's revenues have increased by more than 10% a year. The average cash flow margin for major radio companies is 40%, compared with more like 15% for large TV networks, and the mean price paid for a radio station has gone from 8 to more than 13 times cash flow. Some of this extreme profitability, and thus the structure of the industry, is due to the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allows radio companies to acquire up to eight stations in a given market and to control as much as 35% of a market's total ad revenues. The emergence of huge, dominant radio conglomerates like Clear Channel and Infinity is a direct consequence of the 96 Act, which the FCC, aided by the very conservative D.C. Court of Appeals, has lately tried to make even more permissive. And these radio conglomerates enjoy not just substantial economies of scale, but almost unprecedented degrees of business integration. Example, Clear Channel Communications Incorporated now owns KFI AM640, plus two other AM stations and five FMs in the Los Angeles market. It also owns Premier Radio Networks. It also owns the AirWatch Subscription News Traffic Service, and it designs and manufactures Profit, KFI's operating system, which is state-of-the-art and much too expensive for most independent stations. All told, Clear Channel currently owns some 1,200 radio stations nationwide, one of which happens to be Louisville, Kentucky's WHAS, the AM talk station from which John Ziegler was fired amid spectacular gossip and controversy in August of 2003 which means that Mr. Ziegler now works in Los Angeles for the same company that just fired him in Louisville, such that his firing now appears, in retrospect and considering the relative sizes of the Louisville and L.A. markets, to have been a promotion, all of which turns out to be a strange and revealing story about what a talk radio host's life is like. Part 2 for obvious reasons, critics of political talk radio concern themselves mainly with the program's content. Talk station management, on the other hand, tends to think of content as a subset of personality, 
of how stimulating a given host is. As for the hosts, ask Mr. Ziegler off-air what makes him good at his job, and he'll shrug glumly and say, I'm not really all that talented, I've got passion, and I work really hard. Taken so for granted that nobody in the business seems aware of it is something that an outsider, sitting in air mix and watching John Ziegler at the microphone, will notice right away. Hosting talk radio is an exotic, high-pressure gig that not many people are fit for, and being truly good at it requires skills so specialized that many of them don't have names. To appreciate these skills and some of the difficulties involved, you might wish to do an experiment. Try sitting alone in a room with a clock, turning on a tape recorder, and starting to speak into it. Speak about anything you want, with the proviso that your topic and your opinions on it must be of interest to some group of strangers who you imagine will be listening to the tape. Naturally, in order to be even minimally interesting, your remarks should be intelligible and their reasoning sequential, a listener will have to be able to follow the logic of what you're saying, which means that you will have to know enough about your topic to organize your statements in a coherent way. But you cannot do much of this organizing beforehand. It has to occur at the same time you're speaking. Plus, ideally, what you're saying should be not just comprehensible and interesting, but compelling, stimulating, which means that your remarks have to provoke and sustain some kind of emotional reaction in the listener's, which in turn will require you to construct some kind of identifiable persona for yourself. Your comments will need to strike the listener as coming from an actual human being, someone with a real personality and real feelings about whatever it is you're discussing. And it gets even trickier. You're trying to communicate in real time with someone you cannot see or hear responses from, and though you're communicating in speech, your remarks cannot have any of the fragmentary, repetitive, garbled qualities of real interhuman speech, or speech's ticky, unconscious ums or you knows, or false starts or stutters or long pauses while you try to think of how to phrase what you want to say next. You're also, of course, denied the physical inflections that are so much a part of spoken English, the facial expressions, changes in posture, and symphony of little gestures that accompany and buttress real talking. Everything unspoken about you, your topic, and how you feel about it, has to be conveyed through pitch, volume, tone, and pacing. The pacing is especially important. It can't be too slow, since that's low energy and dull, but it can't be too rushed or it will sound like babbling. And so you have somehow to keep all these different imperatives and structures in mind at the same time, while also filling exactly, say, 11 minutes, with no dead air and no going over, such that at 10.46 you have wound things up neatly and are in a position to say, KFI is the station with the most frequent traffic reports. Alan Legreen is in the KFI traffic center. Which, to be honest, Mr. Z sometimes leaves himself only three or even two seconds for and has to say extremely fast, which he can always do without a flub. So then, ready? Go. It's no joke. See, for example, the John Ziegler Show's producer, Emiliano Limon, who broke in at KFI as a weekend overnight host before moving across the glass. What's amazing is that when you get new people who think that they can do a talk radio program, you watch them for the first time. By three minutes into it, they have that look on their face like, oh my God, I've got ten minutes left, what am I going to say? 
and that's what happened to me a lot. So you end up talking about yourself, which for complex philosophical reasons the producer disapproves of, or you end up yammering. Emiliano is a large, very calm and competent man in his mid-thirties who either wears the same black L.A. Times t-shirt every day or owns a whole closet full of them. He was pulled off other duties to help launch KFI's experimental live and local evening show, an assignment that obviously involves working closely with Mr. Z, which Emiliano seems to accept as his karmic punishment for being so unflappable and easy to get along with. He laughs more than everyone else at KFI put together. I remember one time I just broke after five minutes. I was just done, and they were going, Hey, what are you doing? You have another ten minutes. And I was like, I don't know what else to say. And that's what happens. For those people who think, oh, I could do talk radio, well, there's more to it. A lot of people can't take it once they get that taste of, you know, geez, I gotta fill all this time and sound interesting. Then, as you keep on doing it over the days, there's something that becomes absolutely clear to you. You're not really acting on the radio. It's you. If no one really responds and the ratings aren't good, it means they don't like you. Which is worth keeping very much in mind. An abiding question. Who exactly listens to political talk radio? Arbitron Inc. and some of its satellites can help measure how many are listening for how long and when, and they provide some rough age data and demographic specs. A lot of the rest is guesswork, and program directors don't like to talk about it. From outside, though, one of the best clues to how a radio station understands its audience is spots. Which commercials it runs, and when, indicate how the station is pitching its listeners' tastes and receptivities to sponsors. In how often particular spots are repeated lie clues to the length of time the station thinks people are listening, how attentive it thinks they are, etc. Specific example. Just from its spot load, we can deduce that KFI trusts its audience to sit still for an extraordinary amount of advertising. An average hour of the John Ziegler show consists of four program segments, 06 to 17, 23 to 30, 37 to 46, and 53 to 0, or 34 minutes of Mr. Z actually talking. Since KFI's newscasts are never more than 90 seconds, and since quarterly traffic reports are always bracketed by live-read spots for traffic center sponsors, that makes each hour at least 40% ads, the percentage is higher if you count sweepers for the station and promos for other KFI shows. And this is the load just on a local program, one for which the clock doesn't have to be split with a syndicator. It's not that KFI's unaware of the dangers here. Station management reads its mail, and as Emiliano Limon puts it, if there's one complaint listeners always have, it's the spot load. But the only important issue is whether all the complaints translate into actual listener behavior. KFI's spot load is an instance of the kind of multivariable maximization problem that MBA programs thrive on. It is obviously in the station's financial interest to carry just as high a volume of ads as it can without hurting ratings. The moment listeners begin turning away from KFI because of too many commercials, the Arbitron numbers go down, the rates charged for ads have to be reduced, and profitability suffers. 
but anything more specific is, again, guesswork. When asked about management's thinking here, or whether there's any particular formula KFI uses to figure out how high a spot load the market will bear, Ms. Bertolucci will only smile and shrug as if pleasantly stumped. We have more commercials than we've ever had, and our ratings are the best they've ever been. How often a particular spot can run over and over before listeners just can't stand it anymore is something else no one will talk about, but the evidence suggests that KFI sees its audience as either very patient and tolerant or almost catatonically inattentive. Canned ads for local sponsors like Robbins Brothers Jewelers, Sit and Sleep Mattress, and the Power Auto Group play every couple hours, 24-7, until one knows every hitch and nuance. National saturation campaigns for products like Cortislim vary things somewhat by using both endorsements and canned spots. Pitches for caveat emptor-type nostrums like Avacor for hair loss, Enzite for natural male enhancement, and Altovis helps fight daily fatigue, often repeat once an hour through the night. As of spring 04, though, the most frequent and concussive ads on KFI are for mortgage and home refi companies, Greenlight Financial, HMS Capital, Homefield Financial, Benchmark Lending, over and over, Pacific Home Financial, U.S. Mortgage Capital, Crestline Funding, Advantix Lending, Reverse Mortgages, Negative Amortization, Adjustable Rates, APR, FICO. Where did all these firms come from? What were these guys doing five years ago? Why is KFI's audience seen as so especially ripe and ready for refi? Betterloans.com, LendingTree.com, Union Bank of California. On and on and on. Emiliano Limon's It's You seems true to an extent. But there is also the issue of persona, meaning the on-air personality that a host adopts in order to heighten the sense of a real person behind the mic. It is, after all, unlikely that Rush Limbaugh always feels as jaunty and confident as he seems on the air, or that Howard Stern really is deeply fascinated by porn starlets every waking minute of the day. But a host's persona is not the same as outright acting. For the most part, it's probably more like the way we are all slightly different with some people than we are with others. In some cases, though, the personas are more contrived and extreme. In the slot preceding Mr. Z's on KFI, for instance, is the Phil Hendry Show, which is actually a cruel and complicated kind of meta-talk radio. What happens every night on this program is that Phil Hendry brings on some wildly offensive guest, a man who's leaving his wife because she's had a mastectomy, a little league coach who advocates corporal punishment of players, a retired colonel who claims that females' only proper place in the military is as domestics and concubines for the officers, and first-time or casual listeners will call in and argue with the guests and, not surprisingly, get very angry and upset. Except the whole thing's a put-on. The guests are fake. They're different voices done by Hendry with the aid of mic processing and a first-rate board op. And the show's real entertainment is the callers, who don't know it's all a gag. Hendry's real audience, which is in on the joke, enjoys hearing these callers get more and more outraged and sputtery as the guests yank their chain. 
It's all a bit like the old candid camera, if the joke perpetrated over and over on that show were convincing somebody that a loved one had just died. So, obviously, Hendry, whose show now draws an estimated one million listeners a week, lies on the outer frontier of radio persona. A big part of John Ziegler's on-air persona, on the other hand, is that he doesn't have one. This may be just a function of all the time he's spent in the abattoir of small market radio, but in Los Angeles, it plays as a canny and sophisticated meta-radio move. Part of his January introduction to himself and his program is, the key to the John Ziegler show is that I am almost completely real. Nearly every show begins with the credo, this is the show where the host says what he believes and believes what he says. I do not make up my opinions or exaggerate my stories simply to stir the best debate on that particular broadcast. Though Mr. Z won't ever quite say so directly, his explicit I-have-no-persona-persona helps to establish a contrast with weekday afternoon's John Cobelt, whose on-air voice is similar to Ziegler's in pitch and timbre. Cobelt and his sidekick Ken Champo have a hugely popular show based around finding stories and causes that will make white middle-class Californians feel angry and disgusted, and then hammering away at these stories causes day after day. Their personas are what the L.A. Times calls brash, and Champo himself calls rabid dogs, which latter KFI has developed into the promo line The Junkyard Dogs of Talk Radio. What John and Ken really are is professional oiks. Their show is credited with helping jumpstart the 03 campaign to recall Governor Gray Davis, although they were equally disgusted by most of the candidates who wanted to replace him. Quad Widow Cobelt, if there's anything I don't like more than politicians, it's those wormy little nerds who act as campaign handlers and staff. We just happened to, on our own, decide that Davis was a rotting stool that ought to be flushed. No longer the working-class heroes of the front page, his gal Friday lore, elite journalists in Washington and New York and L.A. are rock-solid members of the political and financial establishment about whom they write. They dine at the same restaurants and take their vacations on the same Caribbean islands. What's more, like the politicians, their jobs are not subject to export to China or Bangladesh. This is why the really potent partisan label for the NYT Time Network-level press is not liberal media, but elite media, because the label's true. And talk radio is very deliberately not part of this elite media. With the exception of Limbaugh and maybe Hannity, these hosts are not stars or millionaires or sophisticates, and a large part of their on-air persona is that they are of and for their audience, the little guy, and against corrupt, incompetent polls and their spokesholes, against smooth-talking lawyers and PC whiners and idiot bureaucrats, against illegal aliens clogging our highways and emergency rooms, paroled sex offenders living among us, punitive vehicle taxes, and stupid, self-righteous, agenda-laden laws against public smoking, SUV emissions, gun ownership, the right to watch the Nick Berg decapitation video over and over in slow motion, etc. In other words, the talk host's persona and appeal are deeply, totally populist, and if it's all somewhat fake, if John Cobelt can shift a little too easily from the apoplectic little guy of his segments to the smooth corporate shill of his live reads, 
then that's just life in the big city. In 02, they organized a parade of SUVs in Sacramento to protest stricter vehicle emissions laws. This year, they spend at least an hour a day attacking various government officials and their spokesholes for failing to enforce immigration laws and trying to bullshit the citizens about it, and so on. But the John and Ken show's real specialty is gruesome, high-profile California trials, which they often cover on-site, Cobalt eschewing all PC pussyfooting and legal niceties to speak his mind about defendants like 2002's David Westerfield and the current Scott Peterson, both scumbags that are guilty as sin. The point is that John Cobalt broadcasts in an almost perpetual state of affronted rage, and as more than one KFI staffer has ventured to observe off the record, it's unlikely that any middle-aged man could really go around this upset all the time and not drop dead. It's a persona, in other words, not exactly fabricated, but certainly exaggerated. And, of course, it's also demagoguery of the most classic and unabashed sort. But it makes for stimulating and profitable talk radio. As of Arbitron's Winter 04 book, KFI AM 640, has become the number one talk station in the country, beating out New York's WABC in both QM and AQH for the coveted 25-54 to 54 audience. KFI also now has the second-highest market share of any radio station in Los Angeles, trailing only hip-hop giant KPWR. In just one year, KFI has gone from being the 18th to the 7th top billing station in the country, which is part of why it received the 2003 News Talk Station of the Year Award from Radio and Records magazine. Much of this recent success is attributed to Ms. Robin Bertolucci, the program director brought in from Denver shortly after Clear Channel acquired KFI, whom Mr. Z describes as a real superstar in the business right now. From all reports, Ms. Bertolucci has done everything from redesigning the station's ID and sweeper and sound and overall in-your-face vibe to helping established hosts fine-tune their personas and create a distinctively KFI-ish style and tood for their shows. Every Wednesday afternoon, Ms. Bertolucci meets with John Ziegler to review the previous week and chat about how the show's going. The program director's large private office is located just off the KFI prep room, where Mr. Z's own office is a small computer table with a homemade This Area Reserved for John Ziegler taped to it. Ms. B is soft-spoken, polite, unpretentious, and almost completely devoid of moving parts. Here is her on-record explanation of the program director's role with respect to the John Ziegler show. It's John's show, He's flying the airplane, a big 747. What I am, I'm the little person in the control tower. I have a different perspective. I have no perspective, Mr. Z interrupts with a loud laugh from his seat before her desk. Which might be a value, like you may want to pull up because you're heading for a mountain. They both laugh. It's an outrageous bit of understatement. Nine months ago, John Ziegler's career was rubble, and Ms. B is the only reason he's here and she's every inch his boss, and he's nervous around her, which you can tell by the way he puts his long legs out and leans back in his chair with his hands in his slacks pockets and yawns a lot and tries to look exaggeratedly relaxed. 
The use of some esoteric technical slang occasions a brief Q&A on how exactly Arbitron works, while Mr. Z joggles his sneaker impatiently. They then go over the past week. Ms. B gently chides the new host for not hitting the Greg Heidel trial harder and for usually discussing the case in his show's second hour instead of the first. Her thrust? It's a big story for us. It's got sex, it's got police, class issues, kids running amok, video, the courts, and who gets away with what. And it's in Orange County. When Mr. Ziegler, whose off-air method of showing annoyance or frustration is to sort of hang his head way over to one side, protests that both Bill Handel and John and Ken have already covered the story six ways from Sunday every day, and there is no way for him to do anything fresh or stimulating with it. Ms. B nods slowly and responds, If we were Kiss FM and we had a new Christina Aguilera song and they played it heavy on the morning show and the afternoon show, wouldn't you still play it on the evening show? At which Mr. Z sort of lolls his head from side to side several times. All right, I see your point, all right. And on tonight's, i.e. May 19th's program, he does lead with and spend much of the first hour on the latest title developments. By way of post-meeting analysis, it is worth noting that a certain assumption behind Ms. B's Christina Aguilera analogy, namely that a criminal trial is every bit as much an entertainment product as a Top 40 song, was not questioned or even blinked at by either participant. This is doubtless one reason for KFI's ratings eclat, the near-total conflation of news and entertainment. It also explains why KFI's twice-hourly newscasts, which are always extremely short and densely interwoven with station promos and live-read ads, concentrate so heavily on lurid, tabloidish stories. Post-Nick Berg, the station's newscasts in May and early June tend to lead with child molestation charges against local clerics and teachers, revelations in the Peterson and Heidel trials, and developments in the Kobe Bryant and Michael Jackson cases. With respect to Ms. Bertolucci's on-record description of KFI's typical listener, an information-seeking person that wants to know what's going on in the world and wants to be communicated to in an interesting, entertaining, stimulating sort of way, it seems fair to observe that KFI provides a peculiar and very selective view of what's going on in the world. Ms. B's description turns out to be loaded in a number of ways. The role of news and information versus personal and persona-driven stuff on the John Ziegler show, for example, is a matter that Mr. Z and his producer see very differently. Emiliano Limon, who's worked at the station for over a decade and believes he knows its audience, sees two distinct eras at KFI. The first was the opinion-driven, personal, here's-my-take-on-things era. The second is the era we're in right now, putting the information first. Emiliano refers to polls he's seen, indicating that most people in Southern California get their news from local TV newscasts and Jay Leno's monologue on The Tonight Show. We go on the presumption that the average driver, average listener, isn't reading the news the way we are. We read everything. In fact, this voracious news-reading is a big part of Emiliano's job. He is, like most talk radio producers, a virtuoso on the Internet, and he combs through a daily list of 60 national papers, zines, and blogs, 
and he believes that his and KFI's main function is to provide a kind of executive news summary for busy listeners. In a separate Q&A, though, Mr. Ziegler's take on the idea of his shows providing news is wholly different. We're trying to get away from that, actually. The original thought was that this would be mostly an informational show, and now we're trying to get a little more toward personality, which, since Mr. Z makes a point of not having a special on-air persona, means more stuff about himself, John Ziegler, his experiences, his resume, his political and cultural outlook, and overall philosophy of life. Part 3 If we're willing to disregard the complicating precedents of Joe Pine and Alan Burke, then the origins of contemporary political talk radio can be traced to three phenomena of the 1980s. The first of these involved AM music stations getting absolutely murdered by FM, which could broadcast music in stereo and allowed for much better fidelity on high and low notes. The human voice, on the other hand, is mid-range and doesn't require high fidelity. The 80s proliferation of talk formats on the AM band also provided new careers for some music DJs, e.g. Don Imus, Morton Downey Jr., whose chatty personas didn't fit well with FM's all-about-the-music ethos. The second big factor was the repeal, late in Ronald Reagan's second term, of what was known as the Fairness Doctrine. This was a 1949 FCC rule designed to minimize any possible restrictions on free speech caused by limited access to broadcasting outlets. The idea was that, as one of the conditions for receiving an FCC broadcast license, a station had to devote reasonable attention to the coverage of controversial issues of public importance, and consequently had to provide reasonable, although not necessarily equal, opportunities for opposing sides to express their views. Because of the fairness doctrine, talk stations had to hire and program symmetrically. If you had a three-hour program whose host's politics were on one side of the ideological spectrum, you had to have another long-form program whose host more or less spoke for the other side. Weirdly enough, up through the mid-80s, it was usually the U.S. right that benefited most from the doctrine. Pioneer talk syndicator Ed McLaughlin, who managed San Francisco's KGO in the 1960s, recalls that, I had more liberals on the air than I had conservatives or even moderates for that matter, and I had a hell of a time finding the other voice. The Fairness Doctrine's repeal was part of the sweeping deregulations of the Reagan era, which aimed to liberate all sorts of industries from government interference and allow them to compete freely in the marketplace. The old Rooseveltian logic of the doctrine had been that since the airwaves belonged to everyone, a license to profit from those airwaves conferred on the broadcast industry some special obligation to serve the public interest. Commercial radio broadcasting was not, in other words, originally conceived as just another for-profit industry. It was supposed to meet a higher standard of social responsibility. After 1987, though, just another industry is pretty much what radio became, and its only real responsibility now is to attract and retain listeners in order to generate revenue. In other words, the sort of distinction explicitly drawn by FCC Chairman Newton Minow in the 1960s, namely that between the public interest 
and merely what interests the public, no longer exists. More or less on the heels of the Fairness Doctrine's repeal came the West Coast and then national syndication of the Rush Limbaugh show through Mr. McLaughlin's EFM Media. Limbaugh is the third great progenitor of today's political talk radio, partly because he's a host of extraordinary once-in-a-generation talent and charisma, bright, loquacious, witty, complexly authoritative, whose show's blend of news entertainment and partisan analysis became the model for legions of imitators. But he was also the first great promulgator of the mainstream media's liberal bias idea. This turned out to be a brilliantly effective rhetorical move, since the MMLB concept functioned simultaneously as a standard around which Russia's audience could rally, as an articulation of the need for right-wing, i.e. unbiased, media, and as a mechanism by which any criticism or refutation of conservative ideas could be dismissed, either as biased or as the product of indoctrination by biased media. Boiled way down, the MMLB thesis is able both to exploit and to perpetuate many conservatives' dissatisfaction with extant media sources, and it's this dissatisfaction that cements political talk radio's large and loyal audience. In the best Rush Limbaugh tradition, Mr. Ziegler takes pride in his on-air sense of humor. His media criticism is often laced with wisecracks, and he likes to leaven his show's political and cultural analyses with timely ad-lib gags, such as, it's maybe a good thing that Catholics and Muslims don't tend to marry. If they had a kid, he'd grow up and then, what, abuse some child and then blow him up? And he has a penchant for comic maxims. Fifty percent of all marriages are confirmed failures, while the other fifty percent end in divorce. The female figure is the greatest known evidence that there might be a god, but the female psyche is an indication that this god has a very sick sense of humor that he uses on the air and then catalogs as Zieglerisms on his KFI website. Mr. Z can also, when time and the demands of prep permit, go long form. In his program's final hour for May 22nd, he delivers a mock commencement address to the class of 2004, a piece of prepared sit-down comedy that is worth excerpting verbatim as a sort of keyhole into the professional psyche of Mr. John Ziegler. Class of 2004, congratulations on graduation. I wish to let you in on a few secrets that those of you who are not completely brain-dead will eventually figure out on your own, but, if you listen to me, will save a lot of time and frustration. First of all, most of what you have been taught in your academic career is not true. I'm not just talking about the details of history that have been distorted to promote the liberal agenda of academia. I am also referring to the big-picture lessons of life as well. The sad truth is that, contrary to what most of you have been told, you cannot do or be anything you want. The vast majority of you will be absolutely miserable in whatever career you choose or are forced to endure. You will most likely hate your boss because they will most likely be dumber than you think you are, and they will inevitably screw you at every chance they get. The boss will not be the only stupid person you encounter in life. The vast majority of people are much, much dumber than you have ever been led to believe. Never forget this. And just like people are far dumber than you have been led to believe, 
They are also far more dishonest than anyone is seemingly willing to admit to you. If you have any doubt as to whether someone is telling you the truth, it is a safe bet to assume that they are lying to you. Do not trust anyone unless you have some sort of significant leverage over him or her and they know that you have that leverage over them. Unless this condition exists, anyone, and I mean anyone, can and probably will stab you in the back. That is about one-sixth of the address, and for the most part it speaks for itself. One of many intriguing things about Mr. Ziegler, though, is the contrast between his deep cynicism about backstabbing and the naked, seemingly self-destructive candor with which he'll discuss his life and career. This candor becomes almost paradoxical in Q&As with an outside correspondent, a stranger whom Mr. Z has no particular reason to trust at those times when he winces after saying something and asks that it be struck from the record. As it happens, however, nearly all of what follows is from an autobiographical timeline volunteered by John Ziegler in late May 04 over a very large medium-rare steak. Especially interesting is the timeline's mixture of raw historical fact and passionate editorial opinion, which Mr. Z blends so seamlessly that one really can believe he discerns no difference between them. 1967 to 1989, Mr. John Ziegler grows up in suburban Philadelphia, the elder son of a financial manager and a homemaker. All kinds of unsummarizable evidence indicates that Mr. Z and his mother are very close. In 1984, he is named High School Golfer of the Year by the Bucks County Courier-Times, He's also a three-year golf letterman at Georgetown, where his liberal arts studies turn out to be a great way to prepare for a life of being unemployed, which I've done quite a bit of. 1989-1995 Mr. Z's original career is in local TV sports. He works for stations in and around Washington, D.C., in Steubenville, Ohio, and finally in Raleigh, North Carolina. Though sports news is what he's wanted to do ever since he was a little boy, he hates the jobs. The whole world of sports and local news is so disgusting. Local TV news is half a step above prostitution. 1994 to 1995. Both personally and professionally, this period constitutes a dark night of the soul for John Ziegler. Summer, 94. O.J. Simpson's ex-wife is brutally murdered. Fall 94, Mr. Ziegler's mother is killed in a car crash. Winter 95, during his sports cast, Mr. Z makes an incredibly tame joke about O.J. Simpson's lack of innocence with regard to his wife's murder, which draws some protest from Raleigh's black community. John Ziegler is eventually fired from WLFL because the station caved into political correctness. The whole nasty incident marks the start of A., Mr. Z's deep, complex hatred for all things PC, and B, my history with OJ. He falls into a deep funk, decides to give up sports broadcasting. Pretty much gave up on life, actually. Mr. Z spends his days watching the OJ Simpson trial on cable television, often sitting through repeat broadcasts of the coverage late at night. And when OJ is finally acquitted, I was nearly suicidal. Two psychiatrist golf buddies talk him into going on antidepressants, but much of the time O.J. is still all Mr. Ziegler can think and talk about. It got so bad, 
You'll find this funny. At one point I was so depressed that it was my goal, assuming that he'd be acquitted and that O.J.'s Riviera Country Club wouldn't have the guts to kick him out, that I was going to become a caddy at Riviera, knock him off, and see whether or not a certain lawyer Mr. Z also played golf with, whose name is here omitted, could get me off on jury nullification. That's how obsessed I was. The lawyer-golfer friend's reaction to this plan is not described. Late 1995. Mr. Z decides to give life and broadcasting another shot, figuring that maybe my controversial nature would work better on talk radio. He takes a job as a weekend fill-in host for a station in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina, the worst talk radio station on the planet. To call the station owner a redneck was insulting to rednecks, only to be abruptly fired when the station switches to an automated Christian music format. Early 1996. I bought, actually bought, time on a Raleigh talk radio station in order to start putting together a tape, although Mr. Z is good enough on the air that they soon put him on as a paid host. What happens, though, is that this station uses a certain programming consultant whose name is being omitted, a pretty big name in the industry, who, however, is a snake, and, I believe, extremely overrated, and he at first really took a shine to me, and then told me, told me, to do a show on how I got fired from the TV job, and I did the show, which evidently involves retelling the original tame O.J. joke, after which the herpetic consultant stands idly by as the station informs Mr. Z that, we're done with you, no thank you, which was another blow. 1996 to 1997. Another radio consultant recommends Mr. Z for a job at WWTN, a Nashville talk station, where he hosts an evening show that makes good book and is largely hassle-free for several months. Of his brief career at WWTN, the host now feels that, I kind of self-destructed there, actually, in retrospect. I got frustrated with management. I was right, but I was stupid as well. The trouble starts when Tiger Woods wins the 1997 Masters. As part of his commentary on the tournament, Mr. Z posits on air that Tiger constitutes living proof of the fact that not all white people are racists. His supporting argument is that no white person would ever think of Tiger as a nigger because whites draw a mental distinction between people who just happen to be black and people who act like niggers. His reason for broadcasting the actual word nigger? This all goes back to O.J. I hated the fact that the media treated viewers and listeners like children by saying, Mark Furman used the N-word. I despised that, and I think it gives the word too much power. Plus, there's the whole hypocrisy of how black people can use it and white people can't. I was young and naive and thought I could stand on principle. As part of that principled stand... Mr. Z soon redeploys the argument and the word in a discussion of boxer Mike Tyson, whereupon he is fired, even though there was very little listener reaction. As Mr. Z understands it, the reason for his dismissal is that a single black employee complained, and WWTN's parent, a lily-white company, feared that it was very vulnerable to a discrimination lawsuit. 1998-1999 Mr. Z works briefly as a morning fill-in at Nashville's WLAC, whose studios are right across the street from the station that just fired him. From there, 
He is hired to do overnights at WWDB, an FM talk station in Philadelphia, his hometown. There are again auspicious beginnings. Except my boss, the PD who hired him, is completely unstable and ends up punching out a consultant and gets fired. At that point, I'm totally screwed. I have nobody who's got my back, and everybody's out to get me. Mr. Z is suddenly fired to make room for syndicated raunchmeister Tom Lycus, then is quickly rehired when listener complaints get Lycus's program taken off the air, then is refired a week later when the station juggles its schedule again. Mr. Z on his time at WWDB. I should have sued those bastards. Question. So what exactly is the point of a host's having a contract if the station can evidently just up and fire you whenever they feel like it? Answer. The only thing a contract's worth in radio is how much they're going to pay you when they fire you, and if they fire you for cause, then they don't have to pay you anything. 2000. John Ziegler moves over to WIP, a famous Philadelphia sports talk station. I hated it, but I did pretty well. I can do sports, obviously, and it was also a big political year. But there is both a general problem and a specific problem. The general problem is that the boss there, name omitted, is an evil, 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 evil man. If God said, John, you get one person to kill for free, this would be the man I would kill, and I would make it brutally painful. The specific problem arises when Mike Tyson holds a press conference and calls himself a nigger, and I can't resist. I mean, here I've gotten fired in the past for using the word in relation to a person who calls himself that now. I mean, my God. So I tell the story of having used the word and gotten fired for it on the air, but I do not use the N-word. I spell the N-word every single time to cover my ass and to also make a point of the absurdity of the whole thing. And we get one, one postcard from a total lunatic black person, misspellings, just clearly a lunatic. And Mr. Z's boss at WIP calls me in and says, John, I think you're a racist. Now, First of all, this guy is a racist. I mean, he is a real racist. I am anything but a racist. But to be called that by him just made my blood boil. I mean, life's too short to be working overnights for this fucking bastard. A day or two later, Mr. Z is fired, for cause, for spelling the N-word on air. Question. It sounds like you've got serious personal reasons for disliking political correctness. Answer. Oh my God, yes. My whole life has been ruined by it. I've lost relationships. I can't get married. I can't have kids. All because of political correctness. I can't put anybody else through the crap I've been through. I can't do it. 2001. While writing freelance columns for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philadelphia Daily News, Mr. Ziegler also gets work at a small 24-hour Comcast cable TV network in Philly, where he's a writer and commentator on a primetime issues-related talk show. Although Comcast is an evil, evil, evil company, which created that network for the sole purpose of giving blowjobs to politicians who vote on Comcast legislation, Mr. Z discovers that, I'm actually really good at talk TV. I was the best thing that ever happened to this show. I actually ended up winning an Emmy, which is ironic. There are, however, serious and irresolvable problems with a female producer on the show, 
the full story of which you are going to be spared, mainly because of legal worries. 2002. John Ziegler is hired as the mid-morning host at Clear Channel's WHAS in Louisville, which Arbitron lists as the 55th largest radio market in the U.S. According to a local paper, the host's stormy 13-month tenure in Louisville was punctuated by intrigue, outrage, controversy, and litigation. According to John Ziegler, the whole story would make a great movie. In fact, my whole life would make a great movie, but this in particular would make a great movie. Densely compressed synopsis. For several quarters, Mr. Z's program is a great success in Louisville. I'm doing huge numbers. In one book, I got a 15 share, which is ridiculous. He is also involved in a very public romance with one Darcy DeVita, a former L.A. Lakers cheerleader who is part of a morning news show on the local Fox TV affiliate. The relationship is apparently Louisville's version of Ben and J.Lo, and its end is not amicable. In August 03, prompted by caller's questions on his regular Ask John Anything feature, Mr. Z makes certain on-air comments about Ms. DeVita's breasts, underwear, genital grooming, and libido. Part of the enduring controversy over John Ziegler's firing, which occurs a few days later, is exactly how much those comments and or subsequent complaints from listeners and the Louisville media had to do with it. Mr. Z has a long list of reasons for believing that his PD was really just looking for an excuse to can him. As for all the complaints, Mr. Z remains bitter and perplexed. 1. The comments I made about Darcy's physical attributes were extremely positive in nature. 2. Darcy had, in the past, volunteered information about her cleavage on my program. 3. I've gone much further with other public figures without incident. I mocked Kentucky Governor Paul Patton for his inability to bring Tina Connor to orgasm, and no one from management ever even mentioned it to me. John Ziegler on why he thinks he was hired for the live and local job by KFI. They needed somebody available, and on the corporate logic behind his hiring, it's among the most bizarre things I've ever been involved in, to simultaneously be fired by Clear Channel and negotiate termination in a market where I had immense value and be courted by the same company in a market where I had no current value is beyond explicable. Mr. Z on talk radio as a career. This is a terrible business. I'd love to quit this business. On why then he accepted KFI's offer. My current contract would be by far the toughest for them to fire me of any place I've been. Compared with many talk radio hosts, John Ziegler is unusually polite to on-air callers, which is to say that he doesn't yell at them, call them names, or hang up while they're speaking, although he does get frustrated with some calls. But there are good and bad kinds of frustration, stimulation-wise, Hence the delicate art of call screening. The screener's little switchboard and computer console are here in the air mix room, right up next to the studio window. JZS producer Emiliano Limon. There are two types of callers. You've got your hardcore talk radio callers, who just like hearing themselves on air. These listeners will sometimes vary the first names and home cities they give the screener, trying to disguise the fact that they've been calling in night after night. 
and then there are the ones who just for whatever reason respond to the topic. Of these latter, a certain percentage are wackos, but some wackos actually make good on-air callers. Associate producer and screener Vince Nicholas. The trick is knowing what kooks to get rid of and what to let through. People that are kooky on a particular issue, some of these Zeke likes. He can bust on them and have fun with them. He likes it. Vince isn't rude or brusque with the callers he screens out. He simply becomes more and more laconic and stone-sounding over the headset as the person rants on and finally says, Whoa, gotta go. Especially obnoxious and persistent callers can be placed on hold at the screener's switchboard, locking up their phones until Vince decides to let them go. Those whom the screener lets through enter a different, computerized hold system in which eight callers at a time can be kept queued up and waiting, each designated on Mr. Z's monitor by a different colored box displaying a first name, city, one-sentence summary of the caller's thesis, and the total time waiting. The host chooses, cafeteria-style, from this array. In his selections, Mr. Z has an observable preference for female callers. Emiliano's explanation. Since political talk radio is so white male-driven, it's good to get female voices in there. It turns out that this is an industry convention, the roughly 50-50 gender mix of callers one hears on most talk radio is because screeners admit a much higher percentage of female callers to the system. One of the last things that Emiliano Lemon always does before airtime is to use the station's next-gen audio editing system to load various recorded sound bites from the day's broadcast news onto a profit file that goes with the cut sheet. This is a numbered list of bites available for tonight's John Ziegler show, of which both Mr. Z and Mondo get a copy. Each bite must be precisely timed. It is an intricate, exacting process of editing and compilation, during which Mr. Z often drums his fingers and looks pointedly at his watch as the producer ignores him and always very slowly and placidly edits and compresses and loads and has the cut sheet ready at the very last second. Emiliano is the sort of extremely chilled-out person who can seem to be leaning back at his station with his feet up on the air mix table even when he isn't leaning back at all. He's wearing the L.A. Times shirt again. His own view on listener calls is that they are overrated in talk radio, that they're rarely all that cogent or stimulating, but that hosts tend to be over-concerned with taking calls and whether people are calling. Consider, this is the only type of live performance with absolutely no feedback from the audience. It's natural for the host to key in on the only real-time response he can get, which is the calls. It takes a long time with a host to get him to forget about the calls, to realize the calls have very little to do with the wider audience. Vince, meanwhile, is busy at the screener's station. A lady with a heavy accent keeps calling in to say that she has vital information. A Czech newspaper has revealed that John Kerry is actually a Jew, that his grandfather changed his distinctively Jewish surname, and that this fact is being suppressed in the U.S. media and must be exposed. Vince finally tries putting her on punitive hold, but her line's light goes out, which signifies that the lady has a cell phone and has disengaged by simply turning it off. 
meaning that she can call back again as much as she likes, and that Vince is going to have to get actively rude. Mondo's great mild eyes rise from the board. Puto, man, what's that about? Vince, very flat and bored, carries a Jew. Emiliano, another big advent is the cell phone. Before cells, you got mostly homebound invalids calling in. Laughs. Now you get the driving invalid. Part 4 Historically, the two greatest ratings periods ever for KFI AM640 have been the Gray Davis gubernatorial recall and the O.J. Simpson trial. Now, in early June 04, the 10th anniversary of the Ron Goldman, Nicole Brown Simpson murders is approaching, and O.J. starts to pop up once again on the cultural radar. And Mr. John Ziegler happens to be more passionate about the O.J. Simpson thing than maybe any other single issue, and feels that he knows more about the case than anyone not directly involved, and is able to be almost unbearably stimulating about O.J. Simpson and the utter indubitability of his guilt. And the confluence of the murder's anniversary, the case's tabloid importance to the nation and business importance to KFI, and its deep personal resonance for Mr. Z, helps produce what at first looks like the absolute monster talk radio story of the month. On June 3rd, in the third segment of the John Ziegler Show's second hour, after lengthy discussions of the O.J. anniversary and the Michael Jackson case, Mr. Z takes a phone call from one Daryl in Temecula, an African-American gentleman who is absolutely astounded they let a Klansman on the radio this time of night. The call, which lasts seven minutes and 18 seconds and runs well over the minute 46 break, ends with John Ziegler's telling the audience, that's as angry as I've ever gotten in the history of my career. And Vince Nicholas, looking awed and spent at his screener's station, pronounces the whole thing, some of the best talk radio I ever heard. Some portions of the call are untranscribable because they consist mainly of Daryl and Mr. Z trying to talk over each other. Daryl's core points appear to be, one, that Mr. Z seems to spend all his time talking about black men like Kobe and O.J. and Michael Jackson, don't white people commit crimes? And two, that O.J. was, after all, found innocent in a court of law, and yet Mr. Z keeps going on about how he's guilty, he's guilty. He is, the host inserts. Daryl, he was acquitted, wasn't he? That makes no difference as to whether or not he did it. O.J., Kobe, you just thrive on these black guys. It is here that Mr. Z begins to pick up steam. Oh, yeah, Daryl, right, I'm a racist. As a matter of fact, I often say, you know what, I just wish another black guy would commit a crime because I hate black people so much. Daryl, I think you do have more to talk about on black guys. I think that's more news which actually would be kind of an interesting point to explore or at least address, but Mr. Z is now stimulated. As a matter of fact, Daryl, oftentimes when we go through who's committed the crimes, there are times when the white people who control the media, we get together and go, oh, we can't talk about that one because that was a white guy. This is all a big conspiracy, Daryl. Except, to be serious for a second, Daryl, what really upsets me, assuming you're a black guy, is that you ought to be ten times more pissed off at O.J. Simpson than I am, because you know why? 
Daryl. You can't tell me how I should feel. As a 40-year-old black man, I've seen racism for 40 years. Mr. Z is starting to move his upper body back and forth excitedly in his chair. I bet you have, I bet you have. And here's why you ought to be pissed off. Because out of all the black guys who deserved to get a benefit of the doubt because of the history of racism, which is real in this country and which is insidious, the one guy, the one guy who gets the benefit of all that pain and suffering over a hundred years of history in this country is the one guy who deserves it less than anybody else, who sold his race out, who tried to talk white, who only had white friends, who had his ass kissed all over the place because he decided he wasn't really a black guy, who was the first person in the history of this country ever accepted by white America, who was actually able to do commercial endorsements because he pretended to be white, and that's the guy? That's the guy? That's the guy who gets the benefit of that history, and that doesn't piss you off. That doesn't piss you off. And then an abrupt decrescendo. Daryl. I can assure you that the last thing I am is racist on this. This is the last guy who should benefit. And then June 4th, the night following the Daryl interchange, turns out to be a climactic whirlwind of production challenges, logistical brinksmanship, metamedia outrage, Simpsonian minutiae, and monster-grade stimulation. As is SOP, it starts around 7 p.m. in KFI's large central prep room, which is where all the local hosts and their producers come in to prepare for their shows. The prep room, which station management sometimes refers to as the production office, is more or less the nerve center of KFI, a large, complexly shaped space perimetered with battered little canted desks and hutches and two-drawer file cabinets supporting tabletops of composite planking. There are beat-up computers and pieces of sound equipment and funny scotch-taped bits of office humor, e.g. pictures with staffers' heads photoshopped onto tabloid celebrities' bodies. Like the studio and air mix, the prep room is also a DPH-grade mess. Half the overhead fluorescents are either out or flickering nauseously, and the gray carpet crunches underfoot, and the wastebaskets are all towering fire hazards, and many of the tabletops are piled with old books and newspapers. One window, which is hot to the touch, overlooks KFI's gated parking lot and security booth and the office of a Korean podiatrist across the street. Overall, the layout and myriad tactical functions of the prep room are too complicated to try to describe this late in the game. At one end, it gives on to the KFI newsroom, which is a whole galaxy unto itself. At the other, comparatively uncluttered end, is a set of thick, distinguished-looking doors leading off into the offices of the station manager, director of marketing and promotions, program director, and so on, with also a semi-attached former closet for the PD's assistant, a very kindly and eccentric lady who's been at KFI for over twenty years, and wears a high-tech headset that one begins, only over time, to suspect isn't really connected to anything. There are three main challenges facing tonight's John Ziegler show. One is that Emiliano Limon is off on certain personal business that he doesn't want described, and therefore Mr. Vince Nicholas is soloing as producer for the very first time, Another is that last night's on-air exchange with Daryl of Temecula 
is the type of intensely stimulating talk radio event that cries out for repetition and commentary. Mr. Z wants to rerun certain snippets of the call in a very precise order so that he can use them as jumping-off points for detailing his own history with O.J. and explaining why he's so incandescently passionate about the case. The third difficulty is that Simpson's big anniversary Q&A with Ms. Katie Couric is airing tonight on NBC's Dateline, and the cuts and discussions of the Daryl call are going to have to be interwoven with excerpts from what Mr. Z refers to several times as Katie's blowjob interview. An additional complication is that Dateline airs in Los Angeles from 8 to 10 p.m., and it has also now run teases for stories on the health hazards of the Atkins diet and the dangerously lax security in U.S. hotels. Assuming that Dateline waits and does the O.J. interview last, which it is clearly in the program's interests to do, then the interview's highlights will have to be recorded off TiVo, edited on NextGen, loaded onto Profit, and queued up for the cut sheet all very quickly, since Mr. Z's opening segment starts at 10.06, and it's hard to fiddle with logistics once his show's underway. Thus, Vince spends 7 to 8 working two side-by-side -side computers, trying simultaneously to assemble the cuts from last night's call, load an MSNBC interview with Nicole Brown Simpson's sister directly into NextGen, and track down a web transcript of tonight's Dateline, which on the East Coast has already aired, so that he and Mr. Z can choose and record bites from the Couric thing in real time. Mondo, who is backboard-opping the ISDN feed of 7 to 10's Phil Hendry show, nevertheless comes in from Airmix several times to stand behind Vince at the terminals, ostensibly to see what's going on, but really to lend moral support. Mondo's shadow takes up almost half the room's east wall. John Ziegler, who is understandably quite keyed up, spends some of the pre-dateline time standing around with an extremely pretty news department intern named Kira, watching the MSNBC exchange with half an eye while doing his trademark stress-relieving thing of holding two golf balls and trying to align the dimples so that one ball stays balanced atop the other. He is wearing a horizontally striped green and white golf shirt, neatly pressed black shorts, and gleaming New Balance sneakers. He keeps saying that he cannot believe they're even giving Simpson airtime. No one points out that his shock seems a bit naive, given the business realities of network TV news, realities about which John Ziegler is normally very savvy and cynical. Kira does venture to observe, quietly, that the Simpson thing draws even bigger ratings than today's Scott Peterson, who, don't even compare the two, Mr. Z cuts her off. O.J.'s just in his own world in terms of arrogance. The designated JZS intern, meanwhile, is at the prep room's John and Ken show computer, working, in Vince's stead, on a comic review feature called What Have We Learned This Week?, which is normally a Friday standard, but which there may or may not be time for tonight. At 7.45 p.m., it is still 90 degrees out and smoggy. The window's light makes people look greenish in the areas where the room's fluorescence are low. A large spread of takeout chicken sits uneaten and expensively congealing. Mr. Z's intern spends nearly an hour composing a mock poem to Ms. Amber Fry, 
the mistress to whom Scott Peterson evidently read romantic verse over the phone. The poem's final version, which is Roses are red, violets are blue, If I find out you're pregnant, I'll drown your ass too, takes such a long time because of confusions about the right conjunction of to drown. And to top it off, Mr. Z is telling Kira as her smile becomes brittle and she starts trying to edge away, to top it off, he leaves Nicole's body in a place where the most likely people to find it are his children. It's just a fluke that couple found her. I don't know if you've ever walked by there, but it's really dark at night, and they were in a, like, gesturing, one golf ball in each hand, cave formation out at the front. Sure enough, Dateline runs the anti-Atkins story first. For reasons involving laser printers and a special editing room off the on-air news cubicle, there's suddenly a lot of running back and forth. In Airmix, Mondo is eating Kukuru's chicken while watching Punked, an MTV show where friends of young celebrities collude with the producers to make the celebrities think they're in terrible legal trouble. Mondo is very careful about eating anywhere near the mixing board. It's always around 60 degrees in this room. On the board's Channel 6 and the overhead speakers, Phil Hendry is pretending to mediate between apoplectic callers and a man who's filing sexual harassment charges against female co-workers who've gotten breast implants. For unknown reasons, a waist-high pile of disconnected computer keyboards has appeared in the Airmix room's north corner, just across the wall from KFI's imaging studio, whose door is always double-locked. It is only right that John Ziegler gets the spot directly in front of the prep room's TV, with everyone else's office chairs sort of fanned out to either side behind him. Seated back on his tailbone with his legs out and ankles crossed, Mr. Z is able simultaneously to watch Dateline's Are You in Danger at Luxury Hotels segment, to hear and help rearrange Vince's cuts from the MSNBC exchange, and to highlight those parts of the O.J. Katie Couric transcript that he wants to make absolutely sure to have Vince load from TiVo into profit when the greedy bastards at Dateline finally air the interview. It must be said, too, that Vince is an impressive surprise as a producer. He's a veritable blur of all business competence and technical savvy. There are none of Emiliano's stoic shrugs, sotto wisecracks, or passive-aggressive languor. Nor tonight is Vince's own slackerish stoner persona anywhere in view. It is the same type of change as when you put a fish back in the water and it seems to turn electric in your hand. Watching Vince and the host work so well as a team induces the night's first strange premonitory jolt. Emiliano's days are numbered. The broadcast studio is strange when no one's in here. Through the soundproof window, Mondo's head looks small and far away as he inclines over the spot log. It seems like a lonely, cloistered place in which to be passionate about the world. Mr. Z's padded host chair is old and lists slightly to port. It's the same chair that John Cobelt sits in, and Morning Drive's Bill Handel, and maybe even Dr. Laura back in the day. The studio wastebaskets have been emptied, but the banana scent still lingers. It might simply be that John and or Ken eats a lot of bananas during afternoon drive. All the studio's monitors are on, though none is turned to NBC. 
On the Fox News monitor up over the digital clock, Sean Hannity and Susan Estrich are rerunning the Iowa caucuses clip of Howard Dean screaming at the start of his concession speech. They play the scream over and over. Ms. Estrich is evidently filling in on Hannity and Colmes. They have hatred for George W. Bush, but they don't have ideas, Sean Hannity says. Where are the ideas on the left? Where is the thinking liberal? Susan Estrich says, I don't know. I don't have a full-time job on TV, so I can't tell you. All multitasking ends when Dateline, after two teases and an extra-long spot break, finally commences the interview segment. It is Katie Couric and O.J. Simpson and Simpson's attorney in a living room that may or may not be real. One tends to forget how unusually, screen-fillingly large O.J.'s head is. Mr. Ziegler is now angled forward with his elbows on his knees and his fingers steepled just under his nose. Although he does, every so often, let loose with a Katie Couric sucks or Katie Couric should be fucking shot. For the most part, a person seated on the host's far flank has to watch his upper face, his right eyes and nostrils dilations, to discern when Mr. Z's reacting strongly or thinking about how he'll respond to some specific bit of Simpson's sociopathic BS when it's his turn to talk. It's odd. If you've spent some time watching Mr. Z perform in the studio, you can predict just what he'll look like, how his head and arms will move and eyes fill with life as he says certain things that it's all but sure he'll say on air tonight, such as, I have some very, very strong opinions about how this interview was conducted, and Katie Couric is a disgrace to journalism everywhere, and that O.J.'s self-presentation was delusional and arrogant beyond all belief, and that the original trial jury was a collection of absolute nimrods, and that to believe in Simpson's innocence, as Ms. Couric says a poll shows some 70% of African Americans still do, you have to be either crazy, deluded, or stupid. There are no other explanations. To be fair, though, there truly are some dubious, unsettling things about the Dateline interview, such as, for instance, that NBC has acceded to O.J. Simpson's no-editing condition for appearing, which used to be an utter taboo for serious news organizations, or that O.J. gets to sit there looking cheery and unguarded, even though he has his lawyer almost in his lap, or that most of Katie Couric's questions turn out to be Larry King-size fluffballs, or that O.J. Simpson responds to one of her few substantive questions about 1994's eerie slow-motion bronco chase and its bearing on how O.J.'s case is still perceived by harping on the fact that the chase never ever, in three trials that I had, it never came up, as if that had anything to do with whatever his behavior in the Bronco really signified, and at which non-answer and Ms. Couric's failure to press or follow up, Mr. Z moans and smears his hand up and down over his face. Or that O.J.'s cheerful expression never changes when Katie Couric, leaning forward and speaking with a delicacy that's either decent or obscene, inquires whether his children ever ask him about the crime. And when someone in that arc of chairs around John Ziegler says, almost to himself, that the one pure thing to hope for here is that Simpson's kids believe he's innocent, 
Mr. Z gives a snort of reply and states very flatly, they know, and he knows they know, that he did it. To which, in KFI's prep room, the best response would probably be compassion, empathy, because one can almost feel it. What a bleak and merciless world this host lives in, believes, nay, knows for an absolute fact he lives in. I'll take doubt. If you enjoyed this production, find the best long-form articles read aloud in the Autumn app, available now for iPhone. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.